grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Hope you're doing well. Uh, I imagine a lot of people are over on TikTok uh, with, what, watching Splash Mountain close down tonight. I'm sure there's a lot of you know people observing that. I was earlier today. It's just one of those things that's happening. And it goes back in you know, 1989. That goes back to when I was just out of high school. And I remember going on that and how funny it was, my friends and I, because I was one of these people that would sit in the front and I would... I would lean down forward every time we came down the five-story drop, so everybody behind me got got the water. So I, unless it was a friend of mine, I was pissing everybody off on the ride. It was pretty funny, you know. So that goes that goes down dear and dear to my heart. I didn't get a chance to ride in February when I was there, but uh, yeah, it's something near and dear to my heart. So it kind of it's kind of kind of pulling on the heartstrings today. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means we can get to you. It might take us a bit. Not even by a bit, I mean one or two days. Because California is a huge state. People don't realize how big California is. But in the meantime, we do have mediums and psychics on staff who can call you and talk to you about what, what, you, know, what, what you think is going on in the home or the office. And they can go ahead and uh, calm things down for you if there is stuff going on. It only takes us like one or two days to get to you, okay? Anyway, so that's the option. If you want to find us, you can find us here on you can find us on Facebook under California Haunts. You can find us over at Twitter at Cal Haunts. You can find us over at TikTok under California Haunts. You can find us at Twitch under Cal Haunts, and you can find us on, uh, at Instagram under Ghosty Gal or lowercase. Okay, and that's a good way to contact us. I everything's public, so you can get a hold of me right away. Uh, speaking of which, if you are watching tonight and you are watching from Facebook and uh, you like what you see, please be sure to, to give me a thumbs up and a, or a smiley face or a heart. Because what that does is there's a, there's a certain algorithm that, that these things are on, these live shows. And uh, the, the, the more of this and the happy faces and stuff that we get, the higher up we go in the algorithm, which means more people will see us. Okay, it, it reaches out to more people. So I'd appreciate if you could do that. Also, if you like what you see tonight and you haven't done so already, hit that follow button because we're doing shows uh, Sunday through Friday and uh, we've got different topics every night. In fact, Sunday, I read from a paranormal themed book so you can relax and eat your dinner and do whatever and just unwind into your Monday. So I, I, I read to you from a paranormal themed book. And then Fridays, of course, are Na our medium Nancy Matt's Fridays. So that's always a fun day as well. Okay. If you're watching, same thing if you're watching from YouTube and you haven't done so already. Make sure you give those smiley faces and the thumbs up and all that stuff because we want to make sure that we get up higher in the algorithm. You guys have been doing, doing really well with that, and, and we are being seen by more people. It's incredible to see the numbers that are coming in. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, but also, there's uh, 631 videos over at YouTube. That's all show, all this show, okay? And uh, I know it's kind of convoluted when you go in, so what I've done is I've taken and I've put those into into like files so all you have to do another category so all you have to do is go in and look if you want to look for ufos and contactees boom go look go check out that file you want to look at nancy matts boom look at her file you want to look at religious stuff boom look at that file you want to look at legends and other things like tonight's show atlantis boom look it up over there so that you know so it makes it easier for you so you don't have to go go through that big glob of crap looking down because i know when i used to have to go when i used to have to go through and maybe, you know, look for certain shows and stuff other than Googling the, my guest's name. It was a pain, okay? I mean, it was, it was like going through a bunch of gobbledygook. So I'm glad I did that. Also, if you haven't subscribed, you should because, we, you know, well, like I said, I'm putting out videos every day. I'm putting out shorts every day. Um, I'm also really active on the community page over there. So uh, check it out. And that, that'll also alert you when we have a new show coming up, right? Or if we have a special show coming up. So, uh, yeah. I would, you know, that's only if you like what you hear, though. I mean, I'm not going to force you to. Also, if you're watching today and you do like what you hear, there's other people in the house that maybe you'd like to say, hey, there's this, there's this cool little show over here. Come on over and listen. Feel free to do that, too, because we're always looking for people, you know, always looking. There's always, there's always those number of things. Anyway, 
That being said, my guest tonight, Jeff Danilik, I'm really excited to have him on. I've seen him on a couple of TV shows, and uh, I've always uh, admired him. Okay, and uh, we're going to be talking about Atlantis today, and I love talking about Atlantis. Almost everybody you talk to has different views on what, what Atlantis is, where where Atlantis is, you know, and all that stuff. And that's why I like talking to people about it, because because you, you learn so much. And I can't wait to talk to this gentleman. I'm going to let him tell you about himself. But uh, I'm real excited to have him on. So without further ado, he's sitting patiently in, in the green room listening to me, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to let him come on out and talk to you guys. Here we go. Hey, Charlotte. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing just great. I'm out of breath now. Now it's your turn. <laughs> tell me about you. <laughs> well, now I can tell. Um, I've been writing books on the paranormal since about 2004. I've, mm -hmm. I've done books on uh, UFOs, on Atlantis, on reincarnation, mm -hmm. on ghosts. Uh, I just like the, the whole paranormal realm. I like to study all the different uh, things that are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, my first article was in Fate Magazine. I wrote an article about the Patterson Bigfoot film cool. uh, back in 1967, and that was where I got my start. So I've published about, mm, I think, about a dozen books now. Um, some of them are, are also fiction. I've got some fiction works out there also. They're kind of a paranormal theme. But anyway, I just, uh, I just like all this stuff, and I like to talk about all of it. Fantastic. And you've been on TV, right, talking about this stuff? Well, I was on um, Ancient Aliens one time talking about uh, uh, the Old West and Ancient Aliens. And so that was my my first foray into uh, into the medium. Um, but, you know, I got, I'm told I have the face for radio, so I might just stick with that. <laughs> see, me too. See it? <laughs> it's amazing. When, when I made the switch to this three years ago, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work because I'm just not, you know. <laughs> I was on Blog Talk for years. Um, let me ask you, now that you mentioned that, about the Patterson film. What did you think about the Patterson film? Well, uh, the article was entitled, Is the Patterson film too good a hoax? Okay. And basically, I worked in the premise that a lot of people do today that uh, how difficult would it be to replicate that, uh, that footage in 1967 with the, the technology available at the time? Mm -hmm. And my basic premise is that it, it is probably a legitimate image of a Sasquatch. And I think that that has been reinforced quite a bit lately uh, over the last few years, especially people looking at the uh, the dynamics of how the creature moves in the video and things like that. But I, look, I looked at it more from the perspective of what would you have to do to, to, uh, to get that image back in 1967? Mm -hmm. And my conclusion is I just don't think it was – possible for even certainly not for for patterson to do it uh, it would oh. probably be difficult even for a special effects artist to do i was just thinking that when you were saying that because i mean it took until what what year when they brought out harry and the hendersons to create that kind of realistic looking suit you know so yeah, back I mean, then they didn't have that technology that, that, that stuff or they didn't have the knowledge to do that yeah not really it's uh you could maybe get pretty close to it today but mm -hmm. uh, there's other elements to the uh, to the creature's walk and the gait mm -hmm. and things like that that are very difficult to replicate, even if you had a perfect suit. Well, the muscle, like when you watch it, like you say the gait on it, when you watch the arms swing and you can see the muscles moving. Well, not only that, but just the That's proportions cool. of the arms, the forearms right. and the legs right. and things are, are off from a human. Fascinating film. Fascinating film. Mm -hmm. Now tell me about your interest with Atlantis. Well, like everything else, I was ever since I was a teenager, I've been reading about these things. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, Atlantis was my first book I got published back in, I think, 2003 or four. Got it here in case anybody's interested. Oh, um, cool. And uh, it's out of print, by the way, but you can still find it on Amazon if you look for it. Just just uh, punch in my name and it'll come up. Oh, wrong Boone. button, sorry. <laughs> yeah, ah, I uploaded the wrong thing. Okay, well, at least you showed it. Yeah, I did. Okay, that's what I, had it, I had it set up to queue up too. Okay, uh, All right, go ahead. <laughs> and so anyway, I uh, submitted an article on it, uh, about a five thousand uh, word article to Fate Magazine, and mm -hmm. uh, they offered to pick it up as a uh, as a, a book. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I, I managed to transfer that over to uh, to Llewellyn, and so that was my first uh, published book that came out, and I was pretty happy with it. How hard is it to do research on something like that? 
there's a lot of information out there, especially with the internet. You can type in Atlantis, you're going to get thousands of hits. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just really wading through it all. Uh, the basic premise has been around for a long time, so there's not a lot of new stuff out there. I wanted to have a book that looked at a little bit different angle than mm -hmm. just that Atlantis was in the Atlantic Ocean uh, during the time of Plato. You know, I was, I was trying to think about not just Atlantis itself, uh, but uh, seeing it as a metaphor there's mm -hmm. something more than just a, a single place, um, maybe more like a, a metaphor for a, a time period in history that has been lost to us, uh, that he was looking at. Uh, and so that's where I approach it from, not not as uh, the traditional Atlantis, mm -hmm. but as a, a different place. And I can go into detail in a minute about where I think it was and what I think it was. Absolutely. Let's, let's start that way and get, get rolling with it. Okay. Well, first of all, we know that the uh, civilization is quite a bit older than we have previously imagined. We imagined uh, life started, uh, you know, civilization began in, in Mesopotamia around six, 7,000 BC. Uh, but since then, of course, they've made, uh, they've made uh, discoveries that predate that by thousands of years. I'm thinking of uh, Gobekli Tepe, the uh, city they found in Turkey a few years ago mm -hmm. that is uh, maybe as old as, uh, 12,000 BC, 13,000 BC. So, and this was a fairly sophisticated city. So my thought process was, if that's the case, then maybe civilization has emerged in the past mm -hmm. much, much uh, further back than we imagine and has been subsequently destroyed or washed away. Uh, in my book, I, I go into a, a great uh, deal of detail about how long things last uh, from metal to concrete. Uh, how long would uh, New York City be recognizable if you just walked away from it mm -hmm. and just let it just disintegrate? Probably in five or 10,000 years, you would never know there was a city there. Mm -hmm. and that's, with, that's even without destroying it. That's just mm -hmm. leaving it intact. So you can imagine if you destroyed it and then walked away. Right. Um, also, I looked a lot at the, uh, the, the topography of the uh, planet say 12, 15,000 years ago. Now, that was during the height of the last Great Ice Age. And the water levels were as much as 400 feet lower than they are today. Well, if you look at a map, uh, especially a, an oceanic map, you see if you lower the water level 400 feet, uh, Indonesia becomes a continent. It's not just 5,000 islands. It's one big continent the size right. of Western Europe. Uh, India is 100 miles further out to sea. So is China. The South China Sea basically disappears. Australia and New Guinea become one giant continent. So you think about even during the height of a great ice age, there's areas on the planet that are going to still remain temperate. Um, and that would be the area that you would imagine would be above water. It would be along the equator. So it's not affected by the cold. Mm -hmm. That would be where if you had a civilization emerge, that's where it would probably come out of just because everything is in its favor, the temperature, the climate, uh, the, the fertile soil, everything. Um, then the question is, what happened to it? Right. Uh, obviously, the, when the ice melted and the water levels rose, most of that, assuming it wasn't completely destroyed, uh, mm -hmm. disappeared under the water. Mm -hmm. And you know, nothing will destroy things quicker than the water, than seawater. Mm -hmm. any, any kind of remnants. Um, so that was basically my premise, is that we were talking about a civilization that emerged probably during the Ice Age in these temperate regions of the equator. Uh, may not have been as international as civilization is today. Right. But it could have been in some ways just as advanced. So, do, you think it, do you think it disappeared when... Uh... When, when the water rose, or do you think maybe it was uh, volcanic that, that would have caused that thing to disappear? Well, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, something called the Younger Dryas. Uh, um, this was a, a period about, uh, let's see, that was about uh, eight, uh, it came out about, yeah, about 13,000 BC when there was a sudden shift in the climate. Mm -hmm. And uh, parts of the planet became suddenly very cold, almost in a matter of months or years mm -hmm. um, and uh, especially in uh, northern Europe places like that and what the scientists ensure sure caused that there's uh, 
questions as to whether it was uh, a comet or an asteroid struck, something like that. Uh, in any case, that's about when this civilization began to diminish, if not be destroyed. So my premise was that the the younger Dryas, and this is just speculative, I understand, right, 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 right. Uh, was a result of something that happened uh, to this civilization. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of a thermonuclear war, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Um, there could have been volcanic activity involved in all this, but something mm-hmm. happened rather dramatically that changed the climate and uh, began the warm up heating up the earth where the uh, the ice began melting pretty pretty quickly it still took several thousand years for the water levels to rise to where they are today mm-hmm. but it was uh that was the start of it hmm. that's interesting i never thought about like anything like that happening but considering that they were so advanced you know who knows well my thought is um uh, india the indian subcontinent is also very old has a lot of old uh, mm-hmm. uh discoveries uh, cities in it so my thought is, what if there was uh, a rivalry between the civilization on the Indian subcontinent and that on Indonesia, present-day mm-hmm. Indonesia? And these two superpowers, original powers, actually got to the point of developing atomic weapons. They, w- they would have gone through the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. They would have created airplanes and everything that we have today. Right. Got to a point where they were just antagonistic towards each other and actually destroyed each other. And and it seems that Plato is suggesting just such a scenario. Obviously, Atlantis is just a made-up word. Right. Uh, they wouldn't have called themselves Atlanteans, of course, or anything like that. But that's a metaphor for these civilizations that essentially destroyed each other. It could have been biological elements mm-hmm. involved in it. So anybody that wasn't destroyed in a nuclear blast would have died from, from plague or mm-hmm. something like that. The question is, why didn't it kill everybody on the planet? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the planet was still remote. Parts of it were still, you know, Africa, South America, places like that were, were not as civilized. They were not as advanced as this area was. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the primitive people there who had no contact with uh, these more uh, advanced civilizations essentially survived it. Once, once the thermonuclear elements were, were worked out of the environment, and once the last of the advanced civilization people died off from the plague, mm-hmm. they would there'd be nothing left but the, the 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 natives who would start the process all over again, and that's where we get our more modern civilization emerged from those people. In a way, it kind of makes sense because, like, we'll talk about you know I'm going to stretch a little bit here, but when you talk about some of the reports from contactees that are coming back off. Off the UFO, you know the, the the alien ships. They talk about how the how how the aliens are watching us because they're they're, they're afraid for us over our nuclear power that we have. So maybe this stuff has happened before. Well, if you are um, knowledgeable about the the, uh, the the Vedas, these are the ancient writings of uh, of India. They discuss these sky ships and these wars that were taking place in the atmosphere uh, between. They call them the gods. Obviously, because any advanced technology would appear godlike mm-hmm. uh, to native to, to uh, primitive people, and these uh, it describes these massive ships, these massive battles that destroy each other, and that may have been alluding to this in this uh, this conflict between these two mm-hmm. uh, regional superpowers. Well, there's always been war in the world, and history does repeat itself. Yeah, it has a lot of the same patterns, right. uh, and I think that uh, we are kind of in the same place that Atlantis was mm-hmm. at that time, where we have an option to destroy ourselves or to rise above it. In fact, it's possible that this, in- this scenario may have been played out a number of times mm-hmm. over the last three hundred thousand years, because uh, I figure if we've been on this planet for three hundred thousand years, and it didn't occur to us to start civilizing ourselves until 250,000 years later, mm-hmm. it seems like a long time just uh, being a hunter-gatherer. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, you know, these are the same people that we are today. We should have had a lot of the same ideas and different ways of think- making things easier. Right, right. 
Um, so you should have seen things like agriculture uh, and simple city-states long ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, mm -hmm. uh, because there's nothing to prevent it. There's nothing to prove it either, of course, but there's nothing that says it couldn't have happened. And I agree with you 100% on that. I also think, too, that you know maybe in our evolution, we get to a certain point, like you say, when we have all this technology, and then if we don't make the, or whoever it is at that point doesn't make the right decisions, like you say, and then boom, it's gone. And then it has to rebuild. And I'm hoping I, and like, like you say, I'm hoping that somebody takes note of all this and you know, from where we're at now, that this doesn't all disappear. Well, I think there's also a spiritual component to it. Uh, it seems like a, as a civilization becomes more advanced, uh, hopefully at some point it also begins to evolve spiritually, mm -hmm. morally, ethically. And it, if it gets to a point where it finally sees the madness of war and turns from it, and I think we're at that tipping point right now. We could go either way. Um, I suspect that I'm somewhat of an optimist. I think we may have passed through the, the most dangerous period. Mm -hmm. We'll see for sure. But I think that we may have overcome that problem that Atlantis did overcome. And I'm going to knock on wood that that's, uh, that's where we're headed. Now, in your research, like you say, you, you've seen a lot of repeat information because, you know, there's a lot out there. Did you find anything that surprised you? Um, not really. A lot of it was pretty standard. It seems like people in this business uh, tend to just copy from each other. Uh -huh. So, you know, if you're doing research on a book Atlantis, you get everything you can find that's already been written and you come out, you know, and you put it all together. So I didn't see a lot of uh, different takes on it. Uh -huh. Um there's um, a few things about ancient uh, aliens that have uh, encroached upon it. Mm -hmm. The idea that these alien races were involved in some of this, but nothing that I thought, wow, that's really different, a different approach to it. Are you a believer in the, in, in um, like chariots of the gods kind of thing, you know, where, where you think the aliens were, were, were help, you know, were helping these, these civilizations? Well, I, um, I believe that uh, extraterrestrials have been observing us, okay. not just now, but for thousands of years. I think we were fascinating to them. I think they just think we're the, the cats meow. He like to study us. And uh, some of them, I think, have been protecting us. But I also think that some of them may have interjected themselves at some point in the past uh, out of curiosity, if nothing else. And uh, they may be the source of the, the, the god legends um, that we have today. Um, there does always seem to be legends always seem to have some source of some degree of truth to it. There's something behind them, which it generated the, the legend. Mm -hmm. And certainly any kind of a, an advanced civilization that came down would be seen as gods mm -hmm. by the natives. And now how involved they became, I mean, if they're actually using lasers to build the pyramid farm, I don't know if I'd buy that. Uh -huh. But certainly some of the, the, the technology may have been known to the ancients. Uh, I would think that the aliens would be pretty stupid to give up that technology to simple people. Uh -huh. They might have used it and let them see and use it, but that's not the same as giving it to us. And right. saying, Here, here's your own laser, go for it. You know. <laughs> Why do you think people are so fascinated with Atlantis? I don't know. I think a lot of it has to do with... Um, uh, the parallels to our own culture and times and society. If, if there really was this ancient civilization that destroyed itself, I think a lot of people want to know is, is that, did that really happen first of all? And is it possible that it's going to happen again or can we circumvent it? I think there's always a fascination with our past where we came from and look at everybody's trying to find out their, their heritage, their ancestry. And that's a big deal right now. You get, give somebody some spit and they tell you where you were from. Right. And so we have a fascination with our past. It's kind of the, the story of us. And I think a lot of people realize that the story of us is still being written. Uh -huh. We're still finding out new things all the time. And that's what is so intriguing is if there's a, a, a Goblecki tech, uh, um, Tepe, then there's other places out there. And we just want to know what it is. And if Atlantis is part of that, we want to know. What's your fascination with it? Oh, I, I, I'm basically what I just said. You know, okay. I'm, I'm also fascinated with the past. I'm a student of history. Um, 
even recent history. I just I just like to know what things were like. I like to imagine how things could have evolved more than once. Uh, the idea that someone invented the airplane 15,000 years ago, uh-huh. and then that technology was forgotten and then reinvented. Uh, it, to me, I think that's really interesting. Uh, if you're familiar with a device, the Antikythera device, which is a small computer that was found off the coast yes. of Greece, and you think about the technology that went into that, and that was over 2,000 years ago. So you think, what other technologies are there out there right. that could have been produced that had been lost? And right now, we're not inventing stuff. We're just reinventing stuff that was once known and, and then forgotten. Do you think it's arrogant to think that aliens helped us invent this stuff, that it was it, it was humans that did it? Um, well, there's a pretty well-established progression um, of in science and technology about how things came into being. Uh-huh. And so I don't think it's arrogance so much. It's more like I would think that an alien race would be very hesitant to introduce really advanced technologies, especially when we're not at a point where we could replicate it anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we had a flying saucer today, we probably would even be able to know how, how it works. It would be made out of materials that don't probably exist on Earth. We would use technologies that we don't understand yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's today. You can imagine if you gave these kinds of technologies to people 10, 15,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it would have done any good. Now, that being said, it's possible that ancient humans were inspired by what they saw the aliens were capable of. Mm-hmm. And they may have gotten curious about things like that and, and uh, began to look into these things. I think certainly there's evidence that the ancients were uh, very up on mathematics. They had a good understanding of, of the solar calendars and the, the stars and planets, which may have been something that they learned from the aliens. That's something the aliens could teach us that wouldn't really mess us up that badly <laughs> you know they can at least show us how the universe works and kind of how time works and things like that but uh, as far as the uh, major technologies like that i i really would doubt it i think okay. we got through that ourselves okay cool now it's hard to imagine you know because of everything we have now it's hard to imagine there being a society like that way back then yeah but you know it's, it's just it's just it just blows the mind well I guess really just got to open yourself up to possibilities. If it happens now, I couldn't happen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've never understood why people say, yeah, it happened now, but it's impossible for it to have ever happened before. And I always mm-hmm. say, why, why couldn't it? And there's lots of reasons they give mostly having to do with the fact that we have no evidence for it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not proof. It didn't happen. That's just proof. We don't have any evidence for it. So the thing is, 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 uh, these things happen and I think they happen for a reason. And mm-hmm. I think there's a certain progression in the way human beings think and how they discover and, and create things. And I don't think that we're that different than our ancestors thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years ago were. They, they thought about things. They looked at things. They observed them. They saw how it worked. They thought mm-hmm. of different ways to make it easier. I can't imagine that at some point 300,000 years ago, they didn't notice that seeds grew crops. Right. And said, you know, if we just plant these ourselves, we don't have to go looking all over the place for this stuff. Uh-huh. And they noticed that certain animals could be domesticated. And they thought, well, why can't we just herd them into some place and have food on, on hand all the time? And why not just make some huts and live together uh-huh. so we can protect ourselves from the other tribes? So it seems to me that civilization would be a natural human instinct uh, very quickly after we emerged. And then there's always one guy standing there looking at what you built, and he's scratching his head, and he's going, "I could do better on that. We can move this here, and you know." Yeah, which yeah, see what your problem is there. Uh, yeah, yeah. You need to fix this and move that yeah. around. There's always, always some guy. Guys. Always <laughs> some guy. So, in, in, in your research and your reading of this, what was it like in Atlantis, from what you can ascertain from from the stuff you found? Well, I believe it was very similar to what we see today. I think they had cities. I think they had skyscrapers. They had computers. Um, I think they had all of the things that we had today. And I don't think it would be remarkably dissimilar. Now, the diet might have been fairly different. There might have been certain fruits and vegetables and foods that we wouldn't have been aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a lot of different languages. 
uh, a lot of different races uh, would have intermixed. I think, but I think if you went back to Atlantis, assuming there was such a place, and got off uh, the plane there, you would say this looks similar. It's kind of like when you travel overseas mm-hmm. and you go to another city overseas, and it's different from your cities, mm-hmm. but it's still very much similar. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've had the opportunity to go to Rome and places like that, and Rome doesn't look at all like New York City, mm-hmm. but it has all the same elements. It's got, you know, cars and buses and streets and lights and all the stuff that we have here. Everything's in Italian, of course, and it's all laid out differently. But it has all the same features. And I think that uh, uh, ancient Atlantis would have a lot of the same things that we would recognize today. Mm-hmm. Just maybe packaged a little differently. Yeah, it's like going to Europe and the great sign of civilization is, is the Mickey D's on the corner. Mm-hmm. You know? That's right. I mean, once you see the Starbucks, you know you're, you're <laughs> home. And McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as you were writing this book and you started to read, like, you know, Plato stuff, because obviously you know, Plato wrote a bunch about this, did, did you have anything that, like, really changed your mind about your thinking going in? No, not really. Plato lays out the basic story, and that's where we get all of it from, from the Critias and uh-huh. the, the, the Timaeus. And uh, and it was interesting, but I wanted to do more than just look at Plato's words. I wanted to think about, was there any other evidences mm-hmm. that we could point to today? Mm-hmm. And so I started looking into things like um, oil production, petroleum products. If there was a civilization in Indonesia and India, um, did they tap all the oil out? Mm-hmm. So I looked at, if you look at today, where is the center of oil production really is the Middle East, but there's not a lot of oil in Asia. Mm-hmm. Indonesia has a little bit, there's a little bit in China and stuff, but it seems like uh, the Asian continent should have been, should have had a lot of oil. Mm-hmm. And it's just not there. It's almost like it's been tapped out. So my question then was, is it possible that an ancient civilization just uh, just used up the oil? and then destroyed themselves. And you know, we're at the verge right now of almost using up all the oil on our planet. Right. We're like 40 or 50 years away from that. Um, and that's assuming we don't just cut it all off and go to alternative energies. Mm-hmm. So maybe they did much the same thing. They got to the point where they had used up most of their oil and shifted over to uh, alternative energies. And that's why you don't see a lot of oil in the Middle East. Um, a lot of quarries and things like that, um, uh, stone quarries, we don't know who started them. People right. have been working these quarries for thousands and thousands of years, but nobody really knows who started, who built it first, who, who discovered it. Mm-hmm. So this could have been there for thousands, many tens of thousands of years, and you'd never know it because they've been reworked so much since then mm-hmm. that any original uh, uh, characteristics would have been lost. Interesting. Because when you talk about the oil, I, I agree with that because, I mean, when you go way back, I have Roman artifacts. And antiquities in my story, you know, in, in my display case over here that, that were oil lamps from Rome, mm-hmm. you know, before Christ. And it, that makes a lot of sense because the oil had to come from somewhere. Well, those oil lamps, were, those are animal fats okay. that they used. It wasn't really uh, petroleum products. Show you what I know. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, though, however, oh. uh, uh, the Mesopotamians, uh, the modern day Iraqis, they did discover bitumen which uh-huh. is a kind of a petroleum byproduct. And they even uh-huh. used it in some of their road construction. But they don't think they got to the point where they could refine it into something like kerosene or uh, any kind of useful oil like we could in the 19th century. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So um, as you're looking through all this stuff and you're looking at the, you know, at the research, how long did it take you to put all this together? Oh, really? Um, I think over the course of about six to eight months. You know, once I get an idea in my mind, I, I can get it to down pretty quickly. I like to get a, a draft done as quickly as I can, and then I just rework the draft to death until I get something I think is, uh, is saleable, and then I send it off and see what happens. But, uh, yeah, really about six to eight months of research and studying and thinking about it. It's not just research. It's also just just kind of pondering ideas in my head. And, um, you know, and then I also drew some maps and made some things like that so I could illustrate the book, uh, make it a little bit more interesting to people. You know, as a newspaper reporter, 
everything we see, everything I see, you know, is in front of me to, to do the story. And with you doing writing this book, even though you had all this research, I mean, nobody really knows what Atlantis looked like or where it was or anything. Is it difficult to, to do those conjectures? Um, well, I think about in terms of how we set up our cities today. We tend to set our cities up on the coastlines, sure, and you know around big rivers. So you look at the topography of of Indonesia, for example. You can uh -huh. see where the big bays would have been, where the coastline would have been, and so you can get kind of an idea of of how it was perhaps laid out. Uh -huh. Certainly, you wouldn't have had big cities up on the top of the mountains, right? Which is what is exists today. The only thing that really is left of Indonesia is those mountaintops, uh -huh. which is the, the place you're least likely to find any any signs of civilization. So uh, that's kind of the way I looked at it was, was how do we do things today and how, would we have done the same thing, anything different really? I don't think we would have. I think we would have done the same thing uh -huh. 15, 20,000 years ago. You think they're ever going to find it? They're ever going to locate it? Um. Now it's kind of like asking if they were going to find Bigfoot. You know, you keep right. thinking any day now they're going to come out with the, the video, you know, or the, the body, uh -huh. and they never do. The thing is, is that there's nothing can really survive 15,000 years. Uh, you know, diamonds and things like that maybe could, uh -huh. but even the hardest tungsten steels and things like that don't, don't have that kind of a lifespan. Uh -huh. And so, the and, and let's say that you found uh, something – unidentified some piece of metal uh -huh. how would you know it was that old it would be difficult to know whether it was from atlantis or if it was fairly recent right um, you know, if you found a, a, an ancient atlantean keyboard in your fishing net it's not going to say made in atlantis on it you know <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to figure it's just somebody threw their keyboard over the board and that's going to be it you know so right i don't right. think i don't think so i, I just I wish we could, but I don't think we're going to ever get to that point. Now, the other question I'm just thinking about is when Plato describes the location of Atlantis, how close was that to where you kind of figured out where you think it is? About as far away as you can get. I was on the other side of the world. Uh, he was talking about uh, Atlantis existing outside the Pillars of Hercules, uh -huh. which was an ancient reference to, uh, to Gibraltar. Sure. But something just outside of the Mediterranean. But you got to think in his world, that's all the world he knew. Really, the Mediterranean was the world. And uh -huh. anything outside of that, he didn't know anything about it. So he wasn't thinking in terms of Asia or the Pacific because he wouldn't have known about these places. Uh -huh. So he would naturally place anything outside of the Pillars of Hercules could be anywhere on the planet. Uh -huh. Now, we have naturally assumed, well, he's talking about the Atlantic Ocean because he says Atlantis. And uh -huh. Atlantic sounds alike, so they must be the same thing. Uh -huh. And so they try to draw this giant mountain or giant uh, island right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, some people contend it might have been the Canary Islands they were talking about or the Azores. Uh, but those don't really seem to be good subjects, or, you know, candidates for Atlantis. They're not particularly uh -huh. large. Uh, they have no uh, uh, history of having advanced civilizations on them. So... I really think that uh, he was thinking in terms of uh, a world that he understood, whereas we have the luxury of thinking about an entire globe. Mm -hmm. He didn't have that, that opportunity to do. Hmm. I find this all really interesting because, yeah, you know, your view on where it is is completely different from, you know, everybody else. But, of course, there's people that think it's off the Bahamas, too, you know, because of that Bahama Road thing. So, I mean, it, it's a varying thing. It'd be interesting to see if, if at some point there's, there'd be some evidence there. Yeah, it would be very difficult. To the, you know, the Bimini Road is interesting, but a lot of people have decided that's probably a natural formation. But Florida was above water pretty mm -hmm. extensively back then. So you could have had outposts of Atlantis around the world. You could have had mm -hmm. not just in Indonesia and, mm -hmm. and India. You could have had cities in Along the Gulf Coast, you could have had cities in North, in South America. Um, I don't think the global civilization would have been as extensive uh -huh. as it is today, just because of the uh, glaciers uh -huh. that covered so much of the globe. So most of Europe would be too cold to really have city states in, uh -huh. but uh, you certainly could have had stuff everywhere else. So 
Atlantis could have been part of Florida or part of Bermuda, places like that. They could have been outposts. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Certainly, if you lower the water level, uh, some of these islands become quite a bit bigger. The Azores, for example, Canary Islands, they're mountaintops. So you take the water down and all of a sudden you got a fairly substantial piece of property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's the key to it. Is you got to look at the topography and saying, if I did this, what would I have? If I lower the water level, what what does Earth look like? Because we have a hard time thinking of our planet as looking like anything than it does now. Right. You know, can you imagine Indonesia as one big giant continent? It's hard to put your mind around that. So, uh, and that's I think the the what keeps people from really expanding the uh, the parameters. Mm -hmm and looking beyond just kind of our limited understanding of what's going on and trying to think in terms of thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know one of the things I'd like to do when I was in school was when we actually had globes back then mm -hmm. was to uh, get like an atlas and cut and, and cut out all the continents. Yeah. And it was interesting to see when you laid them down, how it was almost like a jigsaw puzzle, even with the ocean there, you can, it all fits together nicely. Like you say. Well, I find that the, the plate tectonics uh, is very interesting, how you can see how how Africa and South America fit together mm -hmm. 65 million, 70 million years ago. Yes. And then how they can split apart. And I think that's that's really interesting. That then some of these continents would smash into other continents and create these massive mountain ranges. <laughs> and to me, that's just mind-boggling to think that these these mountains came about over a course of millions of years Mm -hmm. rising very slowly but very steadily until they reach 27,000 feet and it's just like that it's mind-boggling to me the amount of time that we're talking about how everything slowly moves and evolves like that well you know a good a good example of that is the hawaiian islands mm -hmm. you know with the with, with the lava i mean the, the, the islands are forever getting bigger because of the lava flow yeah if you went to hawaii you know uh, 500,000 years ago, just mm -hmm. a tiny little volcano. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's huge now. It's a big island, almost the size mm -hmm. of, well, I suppose, West Virginia, West Virginia in some ways, the big, the big island. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the Earth is dynamic. It's not static. It's constantly changing, constantly morphing into other things. If you came to this planet 100 million years ago, you wouldn't recognize it. It would be so different from anything you knew. You would think you're on a, a, an alien planet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it continues to change. Even today, there are new islands being created all the time mm -hmm. uh, by these by these volcanoes and things like that. So it's to me, it's it's just fascinating to think about how things might have been and where they're going in the future. When you talk about the technology in Atlantis, I mean, I know we just talked about the possibility of nuclear. From what Plato's written, what other technologies were there in in Plato's day? Yeah. Well, there, you know, obviously the only technologies in his day was basically spears and swords. So, okay. you know, uh, he wouldn't have been able to understand, I don't think, anything on that nature. Mm -hmm. uh, however, the, the, the Vedas talk about these great weapons that were able to, you know, as bright as the sun that would destroy things for hundreds of miles. So the Vedas actually come closer to describing nuclear war than, than Plato did. Plato basically just said the gods destroyed them for their wickedness mm -hmm. and their hubris. Uh, he doesn't go into great detail about how exactly, other than it's just an earthquake and a flood. Mm -hmm. Obviously, an earthquake would not be enough to, to sink an island, a large mm -hmm. island. Um, you know, so the, just, but that was the only way he would have understood destruction. Mm -hmm. Remember, just a, a few hundred years before Plato, um, the, um, there was a civilization on Crete, the Minoans, that were largely destroyed by when, it, when uh, Santorini blew up. Big volcano in, in the Greek coast that, uh, blew up and uh, wiped out a lot, a lot of that civilization. Mm -hmm. So he may have been alluding to that. That's how he understood things being destroyed. Earthquake and flood. Uh, there was really no other way to destroy things back there. But we've come up with a lot of new ways to destroy things, which he, he never thought of. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> the other thing that comes to mind is it would have had to be on some tra on a trade route too, because I mean, obviously they were probably trading with other societies as well. Well, yeah, Indonesia is a perfect place. If you look at it, even today, it's one of the main shipping channels through that area, the Straits of Malacca and stuff. So yeah, there would have been a, a, a tremendous amount of trade going through that area. 
uh, all the way from Australia, all the way to the Horn of Africa would have been really the, the, the big center of industry, uh, finances, economies, military, might, all of that would have been right along that area. Um, when you think about the history you know, and you go back and look at all this, how hard it is to imagine, I mean, one of us going back in time, like you say, we probably wouldn't recognize the area. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as like when you, like we were talking about earlier, traveling to other countries. Right. There are places you could go on this planet today that are so alien to anything that we know that you'd have trouble imagining you're still on Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can, I don't travel a lot. I did when I was in the service, but I haven't traveled a lot over the years, but I know that there's places I've been to that were very similar, mm-hmm. very familiar to me. Uh, but there've also been places that I thought, I can't imagine anybody lives here mm-hmm. or how they can survive in this environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just so, so far removed from anything I'm aware of. And it's just, to, to me, the, the world is such a living, breathing thing. Um, that if there wasn't an Atlantis, I would be surprised. Do you think that, because like us, you know, we got our nuclear stuff here. Do you think that, that there was anybody there that could have fore, you know, foretold or foreshadowed that the, it was going to all disappear? Well, I don't know if they would have seen the extent of uh, the ocean rise and things like that. Uh-huh. But just like today, there are people who are warning us that, you know, it, it, we're at one minute before midnight. They've got that clock that the scientists set every year. So we've been like one minute to midnight every day for like all my life. Uh, and there's probably people who are warning about that. Now, it would be hard to foresee something like the, uh, you know, the, the younger Dryas. Uh-huh. So uh, they may have warned each other about the threat cause, you know, that their technology posed, but they would not have probably seen the extent of the destruction. Um, just as I think we wouldn't either. Uh-huh. If we had a big nuclear war, it would be, we could probably see the immediate effects, but the long-term effects would be hard to really envision uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, hundreds of years down the road. And religion, did, were you able to do any research on the possible religion that they had at all? Well, there'd be nothing uh, to indicate that. I'd imagine that if you if you look at our own religious beliefs, they probably uh, had a lot of the same kind of ideas. Um, I would think uh, some of the Eastern concepts were probably pretty prevalent back then, but they may have had their own sort of Westernized type of religious ideas too. Uh, you know, mono uh, monotheism mm-hmm. probably was. Maybe there was even a religious tension between these two superpowers and that was a part of it just as uh, we have those the tensions with the the muslim world mm-hmm. even though we both uh, share a common ancestry in, in both christianity and islam share a common ancestry so who knows absolutely tell me about your interest in ghost hunting and i know you run another show talking about um, ghost hunting tech you know the, the science of ghost hunting tell me about that a little bit well, I'm not one of those guys who will stay up all night looking for ghosts in a house, but I like to watch people who do that and see what they're doing and how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, one of the books I wrote was The Case for Ghosts, in which I talk about the technologies that uh, ghost hunters use. I really want to make a primer for people who are interested in the subject but aren't completely committed to it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of how it works, uh, what a ghost might be. Mm-hmm. Um, how a ghost might function um, in the in the paranormal realm like that. So I'm one of those guys who I don't do any of this stuff myself, but I right. like to hang around people who do and and write about it. And looking at your studies with that, what do you think about the equipment that we as ghost hunters use? Oh, I think it's remarkably sophisticated. Uh, it's getting more sophisticated all the time. Some of it it's, uh, is – I'm not even sure how it works, like the little laser beams and things like that, that they shoot around and it's supposed to detect movement. Uh, when I wrote the book, they were still basically just talking about, you know, infrared cameras and uh, EVPs and things like that. But now since then, it's gotten even more sophisticated. Uh, I wouldn't be a bit surprised at some point if we didn't get to the technological level where we could actually detect 
these entities. There's a gentleman, uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz, out of uh, you probably heard of him. He's been working with uh, with entities in a scientific setting mm-hmm. using you know, triple blind studies and having a lot of really interesting results uh, using just uh, photon detection and things like that. So I really believe that of all of the mysteries out there, I think the one that is most likely to be demonstrated as authentic in the next 20, 30 years is probably uh, the supernatural. Because I, I think that that is, it's just a matter of developing the technologies that can pierce that veil. Uh-huh. Uh, in the same way we've been able to figure out how to f- hear frequencies that we can't hear or things like that. It's just a, mat- a matter of expanding our, our sensitivity to being able to detect these entities uh, on, a, on a regular basis. Have you been out with investigators where you've heard something or seen anything? Uh, I was on the Queen Mary uh, for a conference one time, which was a lot of fun. I got to talk about my book and stuff and meet the ghost hunters and all these people. And uh, I didn't see anything on the ghost hunts because, you know, you got 30 people, you jam them into a room. And, you know, I don't think much is going to happen. I just, right. <laughs> right. But uh, when I was walking back to my state room after uh, a lecture, probably 11, 12 o'clock at night, uh, I keep I could see this thing in the in the hallway. The hallways on the Queen Mary are just they go on forever. They're hundreds right. of feet long, and there's just little side side alleys to them to go to each room. And I saw it looked like a uh, like a gray uh, mop. You know the mop heads mm-hmm. that are really dirty. And this thing was down there. It looked like this little gray mop head. And as I got closer to it, I was thinking, what is that? And then all of a sudden, it skitters around the corner. And when I got to that that passageway and looked down there and it was it was a dead end there was nothing down there but coming mean, wow. stateroom doors so i didn't know what that was and i was still curious i would love i would love to have uh, paid closer attention mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. but you know you just weren't expecting that's the thing about ghosts is they always show up when you're least expecting them you know when you're ready with the camera and you've got all the equipment going they don't show up it's not going to happen yeah you, happen. you plug it all unplug everything and put it in the box and all of a sudden they're all over the place right yeah <laughs> Like they know, you know, they know that power comes on. What do you yeah. think of EVPs, though? What, where do you think the voices are coming for EV, from for EVPs? Well, uh, of course, sound is just a, a matter of, of uh, frequency. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose if an entity is capable of moving an object, it's certainly capable of moving the air mm-hmm. and creating voices. Uh, I find EVPs interesting because, um, of course, there's two kinds. There's the passive and the active. So passive is where you just leave a microphone in a room and just walk away mm-hmm. and then listen to it later and see if you hear anything. But then active is where you're asking your questions mm-hmm. and seeing if it says anything. And uh, it does appear that certain entities, uh, once they develop maybe a, a skill at manifesting things, are able to make themselves heard. Uh, however, I think a lot of EVPs are questionable because okay. you hear this noise and you're not really able to tell what it is. Uh-huh. But then someone else says, they're saying, get out. And then all of a sudden you can hear it, right? Because that's matrixing. Right. And then all of a sudden you hear, oh, yeah, you're saying get out. But uh, so you got to be careful with that. A lot of people will tell you what it says, and then that ruins it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but a, a lot of it that I've heard has been really interesting. I, I especially think it's interesting when they work with EM meters and they okay. get the ghost to respond to questions by turning on the EM meters, you know, lights on the EM meters. Uh, that's kind of what Gary Schwartz kind of along his line of what how he works mm-hmm. is if you're you know if you understand this hit blue if you under you know or red or whatever color right. you want them to turn on and uh, I've seen uh, some interesting things happen with that uh, which is really curious. Is there any piece of equipment that you know of not not counting the stuff that that they're using now that you think may, may, you know maybe shouldn't be used out in the field? Shouldn't be. Yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not com- completely convinced that, that there's a there's a kind of a a box that makes uh, what do they call it? a spirit box where it has static electricity and, or just static noise and you can kind of hear things yeah on it and I, I don't know a lot about that but I'm a little leery of something like that because it's so easy with Paragolia to to hear kind of what you want to hear mm-hmm. and if you just take a bunch of static and uh, modulate it you can get it to say 
pretty much whatever you think it, what you want it to say. So that's something that I've always been leery of. Um, also using live mediums. I don't think it's a bad idea to have a medium on staff. I really don't. But you got to be careful with that because it's really easy to influence the rest of the group. Right. And saying, you know, there's there's someone in here who's very angry. And then all of a sudden all the group is all freaked out because there's an angry ghost. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, but those are the two things I, I'm most most cautious about. The one that I have an issue with, and I know people will argue with me over this, is the one is, is the like the um boxes that scan the radio frequencies. I have yeah. a thing about that because I mean if you're in a big city like Los Angeles. Imagine how many rate, you know, how many frequencies there are out there, and if it scans enough, you can piece stuff together with it. Yeah, that's the, you got to be really careful with. You don't take the technology too far, mm-hmm. and a lot of people I think are using technologies incorrectly, or mm-hmm. they don't have a complete understanding of wh- what it can really do. Mm-hmm. Just because you can take a picture doesn't mean you understand how the camera works. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and you can take really good pictures, but that doesn't mean you know diddly squat about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had a, a friend who was a He's a ghost hunter here in Denver, and he likes to debunk stuff I send him. So I'll send him photos that people send me, and uh, he's really good at figuring out all the anomalies that can happen mm-hmm. and how you can get certain effects quite by accident mm-hmm. that a lot of a lot of ghost hunters, I think, are not aware of. So I think if you really want to be a ghost hunter, you need to learn what can go wrong with the equipment and mm-hmm. how, how anomalies work. And can try very hard to explain away everything technically. And then if you can't, then you can have, you might have some real evidence on your hands. Absolutely. Now, in, in your travels, as far as doing research for your ghost hunting book, is there any place that you that, that you went that stands out to you? Uh, I went to the Stanley Hotel up in Estes Park a couple of times, and that was interesting. Um, all these places are kind of fun. The problem is, is that when you're there, I'm usually there during the daytime. Uh-huh. And there's a crowd. And, you know, you're not going to have a paranormal uh, experience very likely uh, in those circumstances. Uh-huh. And, uh, but uh, like I said, I don't really go on the ghost hunts myself. I just watch people do it. There's right. no way I'm going to sit and watch 12 hours of video uh-huh. <laughs> of nothing <laughs> happening for 12 hours. You know, I'm just not that kind of personality. But uh, if you find something on the video, certainly show it to me. <laughs> it's hard to do that. I've had to sit for like 12 hours watching someone sleep. Yeah, I know. It's like, oh my goodness. It's I, I would, nuts. <laughs> you'd have to like stab yourself in the knee every 20 minutes to keep awake, you know, or something. Yeah. You know, so I, t- yeah, I always make it a point during our investigations. If I'm on, if, if I'm on the table, you're know, watching stuff, I'll just watch it. If, if there's something happens on the screen, I write down the number. That way I don't mm-hmm. have to sit there all night. I can go right back to that spot. I guess you can fast forward it though and see if anything moves. I don't yeah, know yeah, works. you know, just make the mark and you know, see you later. <laughs> Sit through like 12, 13 hours of of material. No, I admire you folks for doing that. That's that's a lot of work. I, I don't think I'd have the patience for it. <laughs> Do you think that there's going to be big improvements in the equipment that ghost hunters use? I mean, there already are, obviously, with the with the connect cameras and all that. But did you see it like? Going like what uh, Dr. Schwartz is doing, do you see any new stuff on the horizon? Well, I don't keep up on the the technology as much as I should, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if there's all kinds of things out there that people are working on. Uh, it's it's just a question. Of, the thing is, you don't really know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand how a ghost operates and on what frequencies and how they manifest, it's awfully hard to find a way to detect that, except by accident. Mm-hmm. You know and I mean, that's the question. Why do you see a ghost in the photo, but you didn't see it when you were standing there? Right. You know, I mean, there's something weird going on there. And so uh, unless they can solve that that problem, I think uh, I I like the idea of a ghost phone, which is, I think, something that Gary Schwartz is working on. Some kind of way of communicating directly with it. Yeah. I think, well, what a mess that would be if you could really do that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the people who got murdered could testify at their own trials <laughs> from the other side who murdered them. You know, it's going to change everything. The other thing that I find interesting about the equipment that I use or I use and other ghost hunters use is that all this equipment, except for maybe a few items that have been built by, by, Billy Ch- by Bill Chapel, you mm-hmm. know, that stuff, the majority of it's used for other stuff. I mean, it's used for regular, regular common stuff. Like a lot of these these thermometers we, that, that we use are, are used for 
uh, cooking and air conditioning. Mm -hmm. You know, I just find it so interesting. Yeah, you need to make a ghostometer. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> just point and shoot, and it just shows you where the ghosts are. That'd be great. Mm -hmm. That'd be nice. That'd be really mm -hmm. nice. Well, it's just like the EMF meters. Those are used all the time by electricians. You know, so, I mean, it's like common. That's why I think it's funny when this stuff is marketed for ghost hunting because it's just a common everyday item. Yeah, that's the way to, to mark it up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and believe me, if it shows up on Ghost Hunters or one of those shows, boom. I don't, it happened well, I mean, to me. You use the technology you got available to you. And yeah. That's always been the case, whether you're looking for Bigfoot or you're looking for a, a ghost. You know, right, you, right, right, right. No one's going to make a, a Bigfoot hunter machine. You know, it's just it's just not going to happen. What's next for you? Well, I'm uh, I'm still working on some other books right now. I'm working on a, a book of the great big book of firsts. Who was the first to, to climb Everest? Who was the first to sail across the Atlantic Ocean? Who was the, all, a book of all the firsts that's happened in history? Because, like I said, I'm a history guy and I like all that kind of stuff. So that's what I'm working on right now. Fantastic! This was a great hour. It went by really fast. I really appreciate you Thank coming you. on. I really enjoyed it. I'd love to get you back on again sometime because you have all those books written. There's topics we can just yank out of the sky, and you know, it's that's awesome. right. I can talk a great length about things I know very little about with no problem. <laughs> so yeah, I'd love to get you back on sometime. But I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thanks a lot, Sean. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it too. All right. Well, you have a good rest of your. Oh, is there a website for people to reach you at? Oh, curiousworld.com. Also, I got ghost pictures on there. So go there and look Ooh, for the ghost pictures. Go check that out. Go check out those pictures. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You have a great rest of your evening. You too, Joe. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. That was fascinating. And I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a ghost hunter anyway. And Atlantis. Yeah, I could talk about Lannis for hours, so that just fast, just absolutely interests me. Okay, tomorrow night, 6.30 p.m., we're shifting gears. Donald Jeffries is going to be with us, and we're going to be talking about something that I grew up listening to. Is Paul McCartney dead? Okay, because there was a rumor back in the, back in the late 60s, early 70s, that Paul McCartney had died and was replaced by a lookalike in the, in the, you know, with the Beatles. And so this gentleman, Donald Jeffries, is going to come on and talk about that rumor, how it got started. Um, you know, is there possibly a, you know, a stand-in for McCartney still, or, or what's going on with that? So he's going to be here at 6.30 p.m. Pacific tomorrow to talk about that. All right? If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. We're just trying to get the word out, like I said earlier. And again, if you if, if you like the show and you were watching on Facebook, please hit me with a thumbs up and a happy face or something like that. Keep us up higher in the algorithm. Also, if you haven't done so all, done so already, tell people in your house about the show. Okay, Just spread that word and uh, follow us if you haven't done that. Same thing with YouTube. If you're watching this from YouTube and you like the show, give me some thumbs up, some smileys, whatever you know, whatever is a happy thing. And uh, Subscribe if you haven't done it because we're looking for subscribers. We're trying to keep those subscriber numbers rising and they've been doing really well, but you could always use more, right? More and more and more. The other thing I want to talk about, you guys, talk to you guys about is tomorrow, if you haven't joined our Patreon site yet, tomorrow I'm going to be releasing an interview I did with Tinkerbell. Yes, I, I know you guys are probably scoffing me, but yeah, Tinkerbell. Um, Tinkerbell, this particular Tinkerbell, uh, Gina Rock, is the longest tenured flying the Tinkerbell at Disney, from Disneyland. And she is the one who for, well, I think for almost 25 years, flew from the Matterhorn down past Sleep, Sleeping Beauty's castle and into a bunch of mattresses at the very end. But she is the one that would fly over, wave the wand, and then the fireworks would start, right? So she she, she happened to come on to do, do a, do a pre-recorded interview with me. And I think you're going to find it interesting because she has a very, very unique life. Her life before Tinkerbell, her life during Tinkerbell, and then we talk about what she's done after being Tinkerbell at Disneyland. So that's going to be coming out on our Patreon. And the Patreon is California Haunts Radio Patreon. It's, uh, of course, there's a subscription fee. It's $5.99 it's $5 a month, I think, something like that. But, man, you know, you get to see these videos two weeks before they're, before they're even premiered over on, on this part of the channel. So that's one of the perks. The other perks is starting this week, in fact, Nancy Matz is going to come on for an extra hour of stuff off of, off of this format over at the Patreon for a one-on-one -on -one so you guys can ask her all kinds of questions. Pick her brain about stuff, you know, maybe even get some readings 
right? So uh, you guys can do that over there. It's more of a private place to do that stuff. And for the paid members, you know, we're going to have different guests on. You know, I might bring Mr. Danilik back over over at the Patreon to do a live over there, you know. And maybe there's questions that I didn't ask that you, you wanted to ask him. And that's your chance to be over there and ask him questions, right? So uh, that's part of that. And then for the people that do subscribe, once we get to a certain subscription number, I'm going to go ahead and do giveaways. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to give away T-shirts. I'm going to give away coffee cups, you know. Just things to, to thank you for being Patreons. So check out the California Haunts Patreon. All right. Okay. That being said, I will go, I'm going to show. Oh, yes. That's right. Thank you for reminding me. I do have a, a psychic development class coming up, but it's a protection class. That's going to be on June 10th at 1 p.m. Pacific. And what I want to teach you is um, there's a lot of talk about crystal healing and things like that. So I want to teach you about the different crystals. But in addition to that, because I know people are always looking for ways to protect themselves, even in their homes or in their car. I want to teach you guys how, how to make medicine bags. I want to teach you guys how to make talisman and different things that you can have in your house to help protect you and your family, all right, or even in your car or work even, you know, to, for, to add some extra protection. When I go on a ghost hunt, I carry a medicine bag. And it's not that hard to do. It's just something to put together, and I'll show you how to do that. The materials, I'll, sh I'll, show, I'll show you what you can put in it, things like that. So if you're interested in that, go to California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup and go to the calendar, and you can sign up right there for the class, all right? It's going to be a almost a two-hour class when I teach it. So it's going to be a very informative class. You're going to learn a lot, okay? All right, now I'm going to shut up and, and close this out. I do have his information to show you, and then now I'm going to go ahead and close it out, and I'll see you guys tomorrow at 6.30. So let me do that real quick. Push my buttons, right? Okay, here we go. So that website is ourcuriousworld.com. And uh, well, some of the books are The Case for Ghosts. And you've got the second one that I can't read. It's too bad I can't read it. I'm blind, remember? It's a mystery of, okay. And there's Reconsidering Atlantis, a new look at three, pre at three prehistoric civil out of prehistoric civilization. So we're talking about that. This is a book I want to show you guys here in the show, but life happens. 2012. Uh, it's a book about 2012 and UFOs, the great debate, but he's also got a lot of books. And so, you know what? Here's your chance to check out his books, check his website out and his books roll over, of course, at Amazon. So there you have it. Okay. Anyway, I will see you guys tomorrow at 6 30 PM Pacific. Have a great rest of your evening.